from Trojans Wire, part of the College Wire Network at USA Today. This is the Trojans Wired Podcast. Here are your hosts, Matt Zemick and Ian Hest. Welcome to the latest episode of Trojans Wired, uh, the podcast, which is an in-house production of the website Trojans Wire, part of the College Wire Network. Gee, I wonder what we could possibly discuss today. Is there anything to talk about? Yes. Uh, Lincoln Riley, USC head coach. Boy, that's going to take some getting used to, but in a very good way uh, for the USC football family. The Clay Helton years, the past 12 years of post-Pete Carroll misery washed away with one ninja-like ambush, a masterstroke by athletic director Mike Bone, who kept this search quiet all the way. No one sniffed it out. It pretty much happened before anyone could say Lincoln Riley to USC. Just an unbelievable job by Mike Bone uh, to help us make sense of that, but also to review the Pac-12 football season, which uh, has concluded the Regular season portion, we just have one game left, the Pac-12 title game, Oregon-Utah, the rematch this Friday uh, of a game played two weeks ago. Uh, to, to help us make sense of all this, Jack Fullman. We bring back Jack. He, he's an analyst for Sports Pac-12, covers the Pac-12 extremely well, a, a very informed, insightful voice. Uh, couldn't ask for someone better to make sense of the Pac-12 football season. So, Jack, as we welcome you back to the show, let's just start with your reaction to Lincoln Riley, what you think it means, what you think it's going to change for USC and the Pac-12. Just uh, you get to tackle this this big picture question. Well, all right. Well, I mean, yeah, we have finally have something that's exciting that's not, uh, you know, negative off the field stuff and bad football. And this is, uh, I think, obviously, this is super exciting for, for USC fans, but I, I do think there should be excitement. Uh, with the Pac-12 mo- fans of most Pac-12 programs, it's obviously going to make some things tougher very quickly. But overall, I think you know teams in the conference, especially rookie teams, punching well and you know doing things like this is it should raise things up. And uh, honestly, I, I <laughs> if you were writing a film script, I mean, what USC did in their their athletic department here is, you know, pretty unbelievable. And you'd be like, wow, that that's impressive and crazy and uh, super entertaining to, to go back and kind of follow the tea leaves of what happened after the fact. And something that was completely pulled over on everybody, it seems like, except maybe, you know, one or two people. So, you know, do you think before we get to USC and, and on the field next year and, and in the coming years, uh, we'll we'll, t- we'll we'll ask you about that next, but just before we get to that, you know, do you think this has any uh, effect on the on the coaching industry and and also how those of us you know who blog about football and podcast about football cover these things? Because on its face, this rumor seemed ridiculous. Like I don't back away from that characterization. Like many people listening here will will know that hey, I laughed at Bruce Feldman and he was accurate in that there was something there, but it's. It's not as though he was saying, like, this deal is going to get done. He said, USC might, quote, take a swing, unquote. That that reflects, you know, a play, 
a serious run being made, but from not from a place of leverage. It's more a place of desperation if you're taking a swing. Um, Mike Bone had already closed in, you know, by Sunday morning. So it's not as though anyone was ahead of us on this story. Also, the other piece of this is that we just had 72 hours of Lincoln Riley to LSU speculation, and it all fell apart. So the obvious thought process was, well, if he's not going to LSU, he's certainly not going to USC. And we were, now I was wrong. I was loud wrong. But the idea that that rumor had legs, that it had substance, didn't meet the sniff test. And, and like, I'm not a newbie to this business. You aren't either. Ian Hest, my producer, he's not a, a newcomer to this either. It just didn't seem like the kind of rumor that you say, whoa, now that could seriously happen. That That is a real possibility. Didn't, didn't come across that way. So do you think that, you know, now that Lincoln Riley's made this different decision and Mike Bone has been able to make this spectacular pull, you know, this does not happen. A coach jumping directly from one blue blood to another. Nick Saban did not go from LSU to Alabama. The Miami Dolphins were wedged in between there. So it was not a direct leap. This just doesn't happen in the business. Do you think we're going to see more of this? Do you think there's any other way, Jack, in which this changes the, 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 the college football industry, either on the coaching side, the media side, or some other way you, you, uh, you have a, a thought of? Yeah, I think in the bigger picture, I think we've seen some changes just with I think the Mel Tucker situation of him getting that huge contract uh, is changing, you know, up in the bar for how much things are going to cost. And I think the scarcity of big time coaches and big time coaches willing to coach and college football uh, was already kind of play at play here. But honestly, with this specific situation, it's so unexpected. It's so wild. It's there's such little precedent for precedent for it, as you said. To me, it really just feels like a plot twist, and USC is uh, the character that did something that you never thought they were capable of pulling off. You know, to me, given uh, given the strength of the SEC, given USC's recent track record of, you know, super disappointing hires, given I, I would say also programs like Texas, and who, who I think is a similar program of. It seemed to me that these kind of floundering blue bloods, even if they were the bluest of the blues, like USC and Texas, if they were set up that big time coaches weren't willing to go to those places, uh, currently I would, I would say Miami kind of falls into that as well, uh, where it seems like guys would either either stay where they are and ride, you know, uh, what's going on. And yeah, I think you throw in that that last piece of LSU. I mean, I don't think there's anyone, me included, who would have thought that someone uh, would take. Um, you know, the USC job over the LSU job right now. But I think this also kind of goes in what we might see a bit with coaching and um, the power dynamic of, you know, the SDC. I, I would have to think that Lincoln Riley, which I've also, we've all heard the smoke about it, that he didn't want to go to the SDC as Oklahoma and, you know, would rather go to USC who has, uh, you know, uh, just as good of a background as LSU, though not in recent years, and you get to be in the Pac-12. I mean, you throw in a lot of things like living in, you know, living in LA if that's something that appeals to him. Uh, but I mean, the competitive landscape is far different, especially for a guy who has recruited Southern California exceptionally well. Uh, I I don't think there's enough big time guys to go around to really make this even a thing. Uh, so I don't think that's going to be. I mean, there's only four or five coaches is right now, in my opinion, that are kind of like the sure things, which would be like Saban, you know, Dabo. Uh, I would have Lincoln Riley, Ryan Day on there, but I don't think the. I never thought 
those guys were going anywhere. I, I was surprised we heard the Lincoln Rally talk to even start with. And then the fact that USC was the able to one, the one to give him the jump is double shocking to me. Jack, how much do you think that NIL played into this and and the transfer portal guys can just jump ship and and make some money in Hollywood and and try and and cash in on this and he thinks that he can get them there. Yeah, I, I would think that would definitely be a factor in that. I don't know if that's the biggest factor because I mean, especially too part of that to me going back to USC and Texas recently not getting the hires. I think people might have thought they would have. Is that college football really seemed to be shifting to these smaller market you know schools that you know their whole existence is more close to the football program. Then, you know, the other things like, you know, Ohio State and Alabama, Clemson, uh, throwing Oklahoma there as well of like, I kind of thought those were going to be the way of the future. I think out West, even Oregon um, has kind of been the case too, where, uh, you know, it's actually an advantage to have a small market because, you know, your, your, your school is probably going to be more focused on, you know, sports and all the other stuff. But what I think and could kind of hope, because I think the Pac-12 needs it to happen if the Pac-12 is ever going to bounce back, is to shift that, to be like, look, we, we're, we're a college football program, and we're in L.A., we're in the Bay Area, we're in Seattle, Phoenix, these huge markets. And hopefully Lincoln Riley can kind of lead the way to be like, this is why you want to come here and not be in Norman, Oklahoma, or you know, Tuscaloosa, or Columbus, for, for that matter. I, I think that could shift and i think that's kind of just a way of thinking and if he can get the athletic department at usc and the uh, overall school to you know support that and the nil is endless and on paper usc should be infinite you know infinite better of an option for that kind of stuff than oklahoma and it's just kind of been kind of strange that that hasn't been the case in the past couple of years all right. And so, Jack, the other components of Lincoln Riley to USC, you know, the transfer portal um, and the assistant coaches. So two obvious points of interest in terms of USC. Uh, before we get your thoughts on Pac-12 football this year and the season in review, uh, quarterback. So Caleb Williams, will he transfer from Oklahoma to USC? And if he does, does that mean Jackson Dart will decide to battle it out with Caleb Williams? for QB one, or do you think that means Jackson Dart would be on his way out? That's number one and point and point two defensive coordinator. Alex Grinch is going to be the guy. We know him well in the PAC 12 from Washington state. Uh, you know, how, how significant a hire is that? So uh, just, you can start with either one, but just, you know, the, the quarterback situation and the defensive coordinator situation for USC. Yeah. The, the best thing about this is the dominoes are so big and there's so many <laughs> like, yeah, Caleb Williams looks like a, you know, an instant future star and, uh, with the new rule, that's it's, it's kind of crazy that you can kind of now bring along uh, your players like that with you, which I don't know if any other sport that that's the thing you could ever possibly do. I mean, if you get hired from the Cowboys coach to coach the, the Rams or Chargers, it's kind of funny. You could bring along Dak Prescott with you. Uh, it's a little wild, but I, I, I would think if he does, I would have to think Dart is going to transfer. I would assume maybe at best he would do one of the situations where, you know, you, you stay for spring and maybe fall and you compete and see if you can win the job. But I mean, Williams just looked like such an instant future star and 
that and you know dart i liked a lot of things i saw about dart but i mean i I would think that you know also coming in with a new guy who has his guy that's a tough situation for him so i would i would probably bet he stays for you know maybe in the spring to compete if they are able to bring in williams uh and probably doesn't win that job and moves on um it's pretty complex though Uh, i would say with defensive coordinators i mean oklahoma certainly has not been uh i don't think anyone's really been paying attention to them or the big 12 is not known for defense, but as you said, Grinch is a guy who took WSU and which is a very tough place to, you know, have a great defense. Uh, and he did a great job and he had a lot of success in the PAC 12, hence why he got brought over to Oklahoma. And I think that's a really good person to be able to bring in. I think just, you know, the style of play in the big 12 is, is bigger. The offenses are, are, are bigger it's more challenging. I mean, he might, <laughs> if he looked at this year and he came into the PAC 12, he's like, Oh, great. Like, uh, here are the opposing offenses and quarterbacks that I, I would face. Uh, this is going to be a, this is going to be a, a really good job uh, to have uh, at USC. And here's the athletes I already have on USC. Here's some guys I, I might be able to bring into the transfer portal. Uh, you know, that's going to be a great setup for him. And it's, you know, you never know how things are going to work out until they do, but it's definitely a huge challenge for everyone in the Pac-12 to have that level of a head coach coming in with the, that kind of personnel options you have now, and then bringing in a guy who has already done really well in the Pac-12 uh, at a time now when it's pretty uh, easy to have a good defense. All right, Jags. So let's review the, the Pac-12 football season. And, of course, the fact that Lincoln Riley's at USC it – it makes us, you know, think about the status, the condition of every Pac-12 program in a different way. You know, if 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 USC had hired, oh, you know, let's say Jeff Halfley or some other non-Matt Campbell, non-Dave Aranda coach, you know, well below what what Mike Bone actually delivered, you know, we would not be thinking about the balance of power in the Pac-12 heading into 2022 the same way that we are now that Lincoln Riley's there. So it's kind of an independent question. Like we we have to just evaluate where every team stands, but obviously Lincoln Riley changes kind of the, the the larger dynamics surrounding that. But just um, with the PAC 12 season now over, what are your big picture impressions about the various schools in the conference? Maybe a a stock riser, not, I mean, not USC, like just we're talking on the field, like USC's on field stock did not rise this season the USC stock is rising for an off-field reason. In terms of the season that we've seen, uh, you know, some notable risers, fallers, programs in good positions in the future, programs headed in the wrong direction. Just some of your big picture thoughts on those kinds of topics. Yeah, yeah. with risers, um, it was not a huge year for Pac-12 risers. Uh, the list of fallers is a lot longer. Risers, I think Utah. I mean, especially if they can pull it out, you know, and get past Oregon on Friday, Utah is definitely to me the biggest riser, even though they had a, they, uh, you know, had, didn't have the best start to the season, uh, losing to BYU. Uh, I, I like what they did. I, I, I like what they're doing on the recruiting front. They're making some progress there in a school where that's not always easy. Uh, I would say the big question with them is something that, you know, Kyle Winningham, which is also the same thing as Oregon, you know, there's some question. At, you know, the coach who the coach is going to be is Kyle Winningham. You know, is he setting up for a few more year run? Is this his last year? Are they trying to set up a kind of Morgan 
uh, Scally kind of uh, transition program. But I like what Utah did, especially if they can punch it in against Oregon, which is a tall task again and win the Pac-12 and get to their first Rose Bowl. And that would be huge. And I, I think that program has a lot of momentum. They're figuring the, themselves out. They kind of have that, as we said, they're in Salt Lake City, which is a bigger city, but they kind of have that Oregon mentality, that smaller market mentality where they, uh, they're really dedicated to winning in sports and football, uh, maybe more so than you know, some of the bigger market schools right now. And that's going to work to their benefit. Um, as far as other risers, uh, Oregon State maybe kind of, but I don't really – I think their success was more about you know, the, the lack of stability in the conference than anything else. Uh, I don't see any like huge momentum there. And then I think Oregon kind of, Oregon kind of stayed pat to me. I, 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 I mean, that win at Ohio state after that, to me, it really looked like they might actually kind of like continue on this rocket ship that kind of was building up in the off seasons. But uh, I kind of just feel like to me, they kind of feel like they're at the end towards the end of when Washington had their Chris Peterson run, they're having a lot of the same question marks. I see appearing with them as, that that program did or you know past Pac-12 teams that have put together you know two to three to four year runs um those are the risers I I would say falling I mean obviously Washington and USC uh USC put on the the defibrillators to uh get themselves some momentum I don't see Washington doing that they you know uh both those programs really fell apart in similar ways on the field uh at least watching them but Washington put themselves in a really bad spot uh, the momentum that they, the doubling down on the the Chris Peterson Jimmy Lake you know package that they did, and how horribly it went put them in a really really tough place. Um, you know, you start to go quickly to other programs. It's just like I mean, you go down the list. I mean, Cal, Stanford, uh, neither of them is has anything side in. UCLA and ASU seem like they're doing okay, but they also have coaching staffs that are major major question marks. What do you do there? And yeah, it's. Uh, the majority, other than Utah, <laughs> slightly, maybe the Oregon school, Oregon schools a little bit. Everyone kind of fell a little bit, or kind of stayed in the middle. All right, let, let's ta- let's tackle some of these coaching questions. Uh, and you know, you were on our show a month ago, and you predicted accurately uh, that UCLA, while it should move on Trip Kelly, would not move. You nailed that. You got that right. UCLA is standing pat with Chip Kelly. Uh, and then we also have Arizona State. Now, this is the one I'm really struggling to figure out, Jack, because it's not just that ASU fell short of expectations this year. ASU either needed to win 10 games or at least win the Pac-12 South if it went 9-3 and three, uh, or 8-4. and four. Obviously didn't happen. And But you also have the NCAA investigation for the COVID-19 recruiting scandal. Like, this is a total mess and nothing, no expectations are being fulfilled on the field. So the obvious thought process was, well, if you're going to have the NCAA investigation, if you're going to have all that unwelcome publicity, that controversy, well, you better win big on the field. Herm Edwards did neither of that. He, you know, he went 0 for 2. He has the controversy and the failure to bring in big results. What is Michael Crow thinking? Because this is a Michael Crow decision you know ray anderson the athletic director is tied to herm edwards because he brought herm aboard they're buddies they're close and these violations are occurring under ray anderson's watch these alleged violations i should say occurring under ray anderson just as much as herm edwards 
So President Michael Crow, it's he could clean house. It would seem to be a totally broken, dysfunctional situation. The basketball program, for that matter, is also bad. Two and five through its first seven games under Bobby Hurley. What's Michael Crow doing? Yeah, ASU, uh, there's a lot of programs right now. I mean, ASU and I'd say Washington that across the board are just athletic department-wise are in a bad spot. And ASU was there. And I I think kind of like UCLA, as you touched on, ASU is kind of in a tough spot where they're committed to this staff, but and this staff was set up to have a big year, especially in the South where USC was down big time. And Utah, I, I have a lot of respect for what Utah's done this year, but you know it's not a juggernaut. It was wide open for both these teams, roster wise. They were kind of set up, and they were middling at really middling at best in a in a middling conference. And I don't know. I feel like if you're a program like ASU where they are, you kind of have to at this point to avoid being the petrol mediocrity they've been over the years, try something different. And they did with Herm Edwards, but long-term I never, I liked what Herm Edwards did early in his tenure, but long-term what's he, what is he going to do culture wise? What is he going to do scheme wise? He always just felt kind of like a stopgap guy at best. And I, then you throw in that off the field stuff. I think that's a perfect opportunity for them to leverage something and make a, a clean pivot. Unlike what you know, what Washington had to do, they kind of things got so bad they had to completely blow it up. Uh, I think they have a chance here to maybe do a clean pivot, and I think they need to swing for the fences and they need to try something different. I think that's an overall thing for me with the Pac-12, and you know, USC is the blue blood, so they don't really have you know saying that they're you know swinging for a grand slam is a little weird, but they did it, and I think that's what programs have to start doing. Arizona State I think has to find someone that they feel like has a big take and isn't just, you know, your typical uh, West coast guy who's going to come in and he has ties out West and, you know, you're going to win, you're probably going to win seven to nine games every year. Uh, Herm was definitely entertaining, but I, I think they need to go. They need to start looking for someone like a Chip Kelly or like a Jim Harbaugh, uh, you know, and find someone who's going to take a big swing and they might fall, they might fall on their face, but, you know, they also might find find a spark, and that's what they need because, you know, the perpetual likely choice is probably not going to work there. Yeah, I have this question for both of you. Just hearing this, is is this just like a situation of that they don't know what to do? They, they don't – they just like don't have an idea about what they want, and so let's just run it back another year. You know, I think about teams like – you know, Kansas State and, you know, uh, the, the, these like middling roads, Tennessee and all those, like the, the, they just don't have an idea of where they want to direct the program. Yeah, I, uh, I think that's very true. And I think these programs that are, you know, we've really seen a monopolization of, you know, success in college football in recent years. And it's been really hard to dig your way out once you fall. And I think these kind of like upper middle, <laughs> upper middle programs, like you mentioned, yeah, Kansas State, like even like a Washington or ASU in a really tough spot because there's not a whole, there doesn't seem to be the options there used to be for, you know, these home run hires that you're going to be able to get coming up the way. And there's not as many, I know I, I said to look for it, but there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of innovative hires, guys you can go out there and get. And I think Washington made the right move, but. I wonder if ASU is kind of worried about being where Washington is, where they're like, well, we got rid of this guy, but now we're going to kind of hire like a 
B minus, you know, something that's not going to really move the needle either. And then you're like, well, are you better just sitting around waiting, but at the same time, waiting for a better candidate to emerge, but at the same time, it only seems like fewer emerging every year, not more. So I, I, I agree. Yeah. I don't know if they know what to do. Uh, and they, uh, they, they're probably a little bit worried about firing Herm Edwards and hiring like, you know, Jay Norvell or something, uh, and then, you know, being worse than they were before, but having to pay out coaches and having to rebuild all over again. All right, Jack, final question for you. Um, we thank you for your time today. Uh, you know, the PAC 12 championship game. So John Wilner, we all know who John Wilner is out here in the PAC 12. He thinks that if Utah beats Oregon, and goes to the Rose Bowl, that the Rose Bowl will be Kyle Whittingham's final game. First, your thoughts on that, but also, like, is this the game by which we're going to define Kyle Whittingham? We know that he beat Nick Saban in the 2009 Sugar Bowl, but that was a long time ago. USC was, I mean, Utah was in the Mountain West. Very different dynamic. Kyle Whittingham finally winning a Pac-12 title. That would really be the capper on, on his resume but like, how how much do you think that would change his legacy if he wins? Yeah, I don't know if Wilner has any intel on that. I mean, in a lot of ways, that would make sense uh, for Whittingham. I could totally see that being, you know, the Whittingham situation. Uh, especially, he could leave the program in a really good place. You know, accomplish probably what the peak of what you could do at Utah uh, under his tenure. I could really see that happening. And I mean, it's kind of weird to put your. Uh, <laughs> to put your future on if you win or lose one game, you know, uh, that, that would seem kind of wild. Uh, I, I would think maybe if he still loses that this is, this is last season. I think that seems to be the case. Uh, and that would be huge. Yeah. You mentioned the earlier win, uh, over, over Saban for winning him, but I mean, especially for a guy who, you know, he, it kind of seemed like this was the mountain he could never climb. You know, he came in from the mountain West too, uh, you know, which is super challenging, uh, coming into this conference and, you know, there were some juggernauts when he came in and teams have kept him from getting here. So that would be kind of a perfect story uh, for, for him to kind of go out in that way and set up for the future. I think there's probably culturally, you know, the, the kind of guys like Whittingham seem to kind of be, you know, not being a huge fan of the way college football is going and what the job entails. So I think that would make a lot of sense to me that he's kind of tired of it and burnt out and go out on top. I, I think that's a very, very likely scenario though. You do, you do kind of have that question of like, well, you've gotten this far and now you're done. You know, does he with the momentum of where Utah is and how they're set up for the future, would he instead want to be like, you know what? Uh, I want to try to make a run at this and build off of this. So I think that's very possible. I think my big caveat would be I would be pretty surprised if it depended on whether or not they, they win a game on Friday. But uh, I, I would be interested if he wants to, you know, build off of this and see what, see what he could, if he could go from there. I think it depends, honestly, that depends on, you know, what, what his fire inside. All right. Is. One word answer, Jack. Just one word. <laughs> Who wins the Pac 12 title game? Utah. All right. Jack Fullman, you can follow him on Twitter, Jack, F-O-L-L-M-A-N, does a great job along with the rest of the team at Sports Pac-12, covering the Pac-12 conference and, and all its sports. Jack, we're going to have you back for, for some basketball talk uh, once all this Lincoln-Riley stuff dies down, the transfer portal stuff dies down. We're going to have you back, but hey, Jack, thanks for helping us make sense of this wacky Pac-12 football season. 
Yep, anytime. Thanks, guys. Love it. In our latest segment at Trojans Wired, we bring on Zach Neal, the editor of Ducks Wire on Twitter at Ducks underscore Wire. Uh, on Twitter, Zachary with a with an H, Zachary uh, C N E E L does a great job with the team at Ducks Wire. Uh, staff writers Don Smalley and Andy Patton. They have a lot to cover this week. Oregon in the Pac-12 championship game against the Utah Utes. It's a rematch of the 2019 title game, which, you know, in a certain sense, that was the last real Pac-12 title game. The 2020 pandemic season with that crazy controversy at the end of the season, that was a bizarre moment. But the last full-length Pac-12 season in 2019, it was Oregon and Utah at the end. We have that same scenario in 2021 after Oregon won the Civil War. I know you're not supposed to call it that, but I like the name. I'm going to call it the Civil War. Uh, so, Zach, as we bring you back to the show, uh, first off, just your reaction to USC's highly, high, highly, highly thought of hire of Lincoln Riley. Um, you know, obviously, it's great for the Pac-12, not, not the hire Oregon fans probably were hoping for. So there's that kind of mixed emotions uh, dynamic to all of this. So maybe walk us through what an Oregon fan is thinking today. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me on. Um, I'm I'm really excited to talk to you because it's like you said, there's a lot of mixed emotions about this hire as a football fan and as a Pac-12 fan at large. I mean, it's a, a great hire. I mean, I don't think USC could have gotten anyone better um, when you talk about someone that can immediately kind of get them back in the national spotlight and get that national brand. Uh, back to what we know USC could be, it's awesome. But uh, if Oregon fans woke up today and kind of felt a little bit uh, uneasy about everything, I don't blame them at all because USC is a real player now. I mean, we've kind of enjoyed the past uh, decade or so, five years, 10 years, where Oregon was the the team to beat in the Pac-12 and they were winning recruiting battles. They didn't really have anyone to to compete with in that sense. And that changed now. Um, you're going to see it. I know we've already seen some people decommit from Oklahoma and look at USC and rightfully so. And there, I even wrote a story right now about a couple of four-star, uh, not commits, but recruits for Oregon that said, yeah, if USC came calling, I would, I would listen to them. So uh, it's, you know, it's, it's exciting in one sense, but it's also a little bit troubling because Oregon is not uh, the singular focus in the PAC 12 right now anymore. And um, in a, in a big sense, that's a good thing, but, uh, it's it's going to be it's going to take some time to get to use get used to that for Duck fans. So while we're on crystal ball, do you, do you think that this uh, changes his thought process in any meaningful way in terms of you know how he thinks about Oregon? I mean, you know, like the Lincoln Riley move, it was a it was a late breaking story. No one was ahead of it, and you know, you and I have talked on this program also off the air. All season long, Mario Cristobal leaving Oregon, never likely, always a remote chance at best, like talking maybe 1%, 2% chance. Uh, but that like Lincoln Riley USC seemed just as absurd, just as ludicrous. You know, I, I and full disclosure and people listening to this podcast probably know this. I laughed Bruce Feldman's tweet out of the room when he tweeted that rumor <laughs> late Sunday morning. I laughed it out of the room, but... Like, I don't regret that because it seemed absurd. The whole Lincoln Riley US LSU drama, you know, Lincoln Riley is going to go to LSU. There was intense speculation for 48 hours, but it never made sense. So when that rumor fell apart, 
the idea of Riley to USC felt absurd. So Crystal Ball leaving Oregon, that seems absurd to me. But with Lincoln Riley going to USC, well, maybe the absurd rumors that we hear aren't really that absurd anymore. So any any sense that this might change how Mario Cristobal thinks about anything and everything in, in, in the coaching industry? Yeah, I, I still don't think he's going to leave. I mean, never say never because we saw, like you said, Lincoln Riley didn't seem like he was going to leave, and, and here you go. So there's still a, a non-zero chance that Cristobal takes a job at Miami or LSU. I know Florida's been filled, which is kind of nice for Duck fans to check that one off. We dodged that bullet. But uh, in a sense, I – I kind of feel in a weird, I want to think that Lincoln Riley going to USC actually makes it so Crystal Ball might stay in Oregon. Um, I, I might have to connect a few dots there to make that all work in my brain, but um, it kind of felt like Oregon was not a great job nationally because they didn't have anyone really to compete with and they weren't respected because of that. And so it kind of felt like Cristobal might want to go down to the SEC so he could play with the big boys and be more respected as a coach. Uh, I think that's changed now because the Pac-12 is going to get a lot better with Lincoln Riley there. They're going to be considered for playoff spots and for these these top spots in the nation. So um, I think that competition really just came to Cristobal with this hire. I mean, I don't I don't know if he was really if he was going to be leaving for competition's sake. It's probably going to be more compensation sake, but um, I think that the respectability of Oregon's job just got a lot higher because he's going to have to go through better opponents now to get to that top spot. Uh, if Oregon can stay successful, we'll see. Um, I think they can. I think they're going to have a, a really fun rivalry now over the next five, 10 years with USC. But um, in a weird sense, I think that Riley coming to USC actually kind of makes me feel more comfortable that Cristobal's going to stay because he's someone that desires competition and now he's got it. That, that he definitely does. All right. So speaking of competition and Oregon, the big PAC 12 championship game this Friday. So, you know, I mean, it was a butt kicking in Salt Lake city and the, the, the saving grace for Oregon here rematches usually take on a very different texture compared to first meetings. So you know, the idea that Utah is going to be play a great game, probably not very likely. It won't be in Salt Lake City at night. Uh, you know, it, a very difficult environment for visitors, a great environment for the Utes. You're not going to have that uh, at this neutral site game. So that right there gives Oregon uh, a, a definite plus. There are also some really crazy things which happened in that game, especially a 78-yard punt return on the final play of the half like that. Something like that is not going to happen again. So, you know, those wacky scenarios aside, in terms of like the nuts and bolts of this game, what, where, where does it all have to start for Oregon in terms of flipping the script against Utah? Well, it's, we all know it's really hard to beat a team twice. And Utah gave us their best shot and they played fantastic the other week. I mean, they, they looked like it's a far better team. This is taking absolutely nothing away from them. They, Kyle Whittingham had his team ready to play. Uh, but I, I think we saw one of the worst games that Oregon's played in a long, long time. It was the, the worst defeat of Mario Cristobal's career at Oregon. Um, and I, I honestly feel pretty confident going into this game because 
uh, Oregon took their best shot. And yeah, we got smacked in the mouth, but I, I struggle to think that that will happen again. I don't think Utah is that much better of a team than Oregon that they can, they can route them twice in three weeks. Uh, am I saying outright that Oregon's going to win this game and be dominant? No, I, I think Utah's way too good of a team to, to predict anything like that. It's going to be a close game, I think. Um, but one that I think the Ducks can win, I think they learned a lot. And we saw this past week against Oregon State that they they really flipped the script and they looked like a completely different team than they did against Utah. So um, I think the environment's going to matter. It's in Allegiant Stadium down in Las Vegas, not in the, the cold mountains of Salt Lake City. Um, and I think they really just kind of they got woken up against Utah and they were sleepwalking a bit. They didn't really ever get off the bus and come to play. And I don't think that's going to happen again this week. An obvious concern for the Ducks injuries and part of the injuries came from the Utah game, which they were, they were physically handled uh, at the line of scrimmage. So, you know, and the other thing is, you know, Utah played Friday afternoon against Colorado, Oregon played on Saturday. So it's a shorter week for Oregon uh, in terms of preparation. Uh, you know, do you, how much of a concern is it for you and for Oregon uh, that the Ducks have a short week and that they're banged up? And, and which injuries uh, are, are foremost on your mind uh, heading into Friday? I think that's a big concern. I mean, it's it's one less day to prepare and one less day to get healthy. Uh, we'll talk to Cristobal here in a little bit after I get off the phone with you. And he'll give us an update on two major injuries that happened against Oregon State. Uh, Noah Sewell, linebacker and cornerback Michael Wright, went out of the game on the exact same play in the third quarter, I think it was. Uh, Sewell looked like he hurt his shoulder. Uh, Wright looked like he hurt his left arm somehow. But neither of them came back in the game, which uh, is, is a bit concerning, especially when you, you talk about already all of the, the injuries that's taken place at those two positions in particular this season. So... Uh, we'll get a little bit more of an update here coming up as to how healthy those guys are and whether or not they'll be able to play. Cristobal said after the game that he didn't think any of the injuries seemed to be that serious. He didn't name anyone particularly, but he kind of gave a little bit of good news. But, you know, take that with a grain of salt. It's a coach after a win. Um, but, yeah, I, I am absolutely concerned about injuries because the Ducks have really been snake bitten all year. And, They've managed to, to get away uh, almost unscathed so far. Um, but, you know, it's it, there's only so much you can do. How much do you think the McKinley suspension for the first half is going gonna, is gonna to matter? And, and how does that change your overall assessment of this game and what Oregon uh, needs to do? He actually did not get suspended for the first half. They, uh, they rescinded that targeting call, which was oh. a saving grace. Yeah, wow. I, I think that 99% of everyone thought that he that that probably was targeting and he'd be suspended but they actually rescinded it which uh shocked us all and we will absolutely take that gift okay so yeah that's that certainly changes the complexion so in terms of uh you know like it was 38 7 in salt lake city so like when we let's play a price is right pricing game you know is the is the one price higher or lower you know the what which number is like more distant from the actual retail price so the Utah scoring 38, Oregon scoring seven. As we look at this rematch, like which number has to switch more dramatically? Like, do you think this is going to be a game played in the high 20s? Or do you think that this could be like a 13-10 rock fight? And, you know, Utah, let's remember, Utah played a 10-3 snooze fest 
in its first Pac-12 championship game against the Washington Huskies in 2018, a totally unwatchable game. And Utah's offense, really, in each of its Pac-12 title game appearances, has just stepped on a rake. So, you know, do you think Oregon needs to make this a 13-10 rock fight? Do you think it's more about Oregon and Anthony Brown finding a groove on offense and winning a game 31-28 in this Price is Right pricing game? You're thinking higher or lower? Yeah, I think all of the onus has to be on Oregon's offense to put some points on the board. I mean, the, the defense is really solid. Utah's got a solid offense and a, and a good defense, too. So I, I really see this game being played in the, the mid to high 20s. Uh, like you said, a 31 to 28, 35, 31, that type of score, I think is closer than a, a 17 to 14, something like that. So, I mean, we've seen that Oregon is at their absolute best when the offense is moving the ball. They're sustaining drives. They're they're running the ball well. And Anthony Brown is, is finding receivers over the middle. So um, I think that the biggest anomaly two weeks ago was the fact that Oregon had no ability to move the ball. Uh, they couldn't run the ball. They were just terrible in every facet of the offense and the, the whole game, really. But um, I think if Oregon is going to be successful, they're really going to have to get the ball moving. And uh, they've got so many injuries on the defense that I really I don't feel comfortable that they can win a 17 to 14 game. I think they have a much better chance if it's scored in the high 20s. All right. Now, you know, something I've talked about with you and also Don Smalley, your team at Duckswire. Uh, is that you know we're wait we're waiting for that breakout game from Oregon's wide receivers. So it didn't it didn't happen in Salt Lake City. Did anything happen against Oregon State in which you got the sense, whoa, the light just went on for an Oregon receiver creating the perfect groundswell of momentum heading into this game that leads you to think we're going to finally get a a big league performance from the Oregon receivers to change the equation in this game. I'm always a little hesitant to say that, yes, I saw this one thing that's going to change everything because this team has been one of their fatal flaws all year is how inconsistent they've been. I mean, one week we see uh, just them play fantastic on offense, and the, the next week is Utah, and they score seven points. So um, it's it's been a really up-and-down season offensively, mainly for Anthony Brown, but uh, last week we had two. We had our first receiver of the year cross 100 yards in a game, which was Devin Williams. He had 110, and then freshman receiver Chris Hudson already also had the game of his life with, or game of his Oregon career with, I think 82, 83 yards. So um, those are two names to watch. Devin Williams has been doing it for for most of the season. He's clearly the number one option right now. But uh, speaking of injuries, again, we lost Johnny Johnson the third and Jalen Red. To, to season-ending injuries, and they were both seniors and the two leading receivers on the team. And then we also had Micah Pittman transfer uh, two weeks ago right before the Utah game, which we're, we're still not really sure why that happened at that time. But, you know, that's a conversation for a different day. So um, I don't know if there's anything that I saw on Saturday that makes me think that all of Oregon's receiving problems are solved, but it was sure a heck of a lot better than watching them against Utah. And I, I think they can hopefully carry that forward. All right. We know that you have to catch a Mario Cristobal pressers. Just one more question. If Joe Moorhead leaves for Akron, the head coach, that's been, that's the hot rumor. Uh, Pete Thamel of Yahoo reported that late Sunday night. You know, if, if he leaves, what's the significance of that and how you think Oregon adjusts and responds to it? You know, it's pretty big, but it's not something that we have not been expecting all season. 
ever since Moorhead came to Oregon as the offensive quarter coordinator, we uh, we knew it was going to be a short stay for him simply because he's he's someone that's been a head coach and was kind of looking for that stepping stone to get back into the head coaching realm. So um, he's been a fantastic offensive coordinator. We've really enjoyed having him. Um, but it, it does not at all come as a shock because we were pretty certain all year that he'd be gone. It's just kind of which, which school he took over as the head coach. And really, this is not something new for Cristobal either. He's had four offensive or defensive coordinator hires since being the head coach. And now if once more head signs this deal, wherever it is, that will make three of the four that have left. And the only one staying is Tender Reuter, the defensive coordinator who is finished his first year with the team so um it's it's significant we will miss Morehead. absolutely he's been a great coordinator but uh really happy to see him find success with us and glad that we could be that stepping stone to get him a new job all right zachary neil you can follow him on twitter zachary c-n-e-e-l he and the rest of the team at ducks wire ducks underscore wire on twitter duckswire.usatoday.com uh does an absolutely fabulous job hey zach Thanks for joining us, and hey, good luck covering the Pac-12 championship game as the Ducks face Utah. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on.